Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Me in John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 53. Uh, and if you open up an uh, ESV at least, you're going to see that 53 of John 7 is actually included right next to the heading of John chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, and so you'll actually see uh, the large 8, and you'll actually see the 53 from the preceding chapter alongside of it. And so uh, that's where we're going to begin this morning and read that uh, section uh, that's found there within your Bibles, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53. And we'll read through John chapter 8, verse 11. If you have the the uh, weekly bulletin, I encourage you to take the handout, the notes there, be able to fill those in. They're going to aid us this morning. And this might be one you want to pay close attention to. Uh, uh, this is a debated portion of Scripture. And so uh, we're going to begin looking. That's why the title is, uh, the theme is the reliability of the Bible. And I hope by the end of our time today, you're going to be even more encouraged by uh, the integrity and the, the uh veracity of the of the document of the bible of the word of god that you hold in your hands you have even more uh confidence in it than before we began today so let me pray let me read and we'll pray and then we'll dive into our text so john chapter 7 beginning in verse 53 through john chapter 8 verse 11 it says they went each to his own house but jesus went to the mount of olives early in the morning he came again to the temple And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as he continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us clarity this morning. I pray you'd help me to speak with precision, uh, speak carefully and thoughtfully uh, as to uh, what I'm attempting to say. I pray you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. And that, Lord, I pray that that by the conclusion of our time this morning, that, Lord, those on the hearing of my voice, Lord, would have greater confidence in the Bible than when we began today. I pray that we be honest with the, uh, our understanding of the facts, on, uh, honest with our understanding of what is taking place, so that, Lord, it, it can lead us to that very place. Lord, I pray that even in the midst of the, the sermon this morning and in the midst of what can be viewed as controversy and debate, that, Lord, ultimately you would receive great glory 
uh, and that, Lord, that your name would be lifted up, and that, Lord, that we may be able to trust you and your word all the more. And, uh, Lord, I, we just want to say we love you, and we thank you for uh, preserving your word for us, for power of the Holy Spirit that illuminates that word, that enables us to obey it, that uh, transforms our hearts to desire it and, and to love it and to understand it. And for the body, Lord, that you've granted us to help us to obey it, to help us to proclaim it as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll see here that the theme is the authenticity, I mean the reliability of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. And that's the theme. Uh, it's not a very good theme if the intent is to just exegete the passage. Uh, and so w- this is rare for me that I don't just take a passage and just expose it to lift out what the text says. And so it's, Im- it's important to be able to understand that because I think that's common today where individuals will uh, start. And many times with evangelists, they'll, they'll share a verse of Scripture that uh, is found within the context of a chapter, uh, within a section of Scripture, within a book, within the Bible, within a particular canon, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. And, uh, and it has a context upon which it's there. And the best thing if we were to be able to know what the author intended it to say would be able to just explain the text. But many times through uh, uh, a variety of quips and jokes and illustrations, they'll launch from a place to go in the direction that they want to go. And uh, not that I'm going to be sharing a lot of jokes and illustrations and, and such. The intent behind this is uh, to be able to to utilize this passage to evaluate this passage. And so it's not going to be a typical sermon that you would begin to see, but it's important because of what that's actually surrounding this particular passage. If you're holding your hand in ESV, an English Standard Version, uh, what we preach and teach out of, you'll begin to see that there are brackets in this particular section. Do you guys see the brackets? Are they in your, in your version? If not, if you have maybe uh, a... Uh, and other versions as well, New American Standard, New American Standard Updated Version. Um, uh, and then even if you own a King James Version, uh, I mean a new King James Version, it's going to at least have a footnote uh, to the side, and potentially your footnote as a loan that says in mine uh, that begin to say that the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11, right? And so reality of that is that can pose a problem for us. And that's why I want to be able to address, not necessarily walking through verse by verse, expositionally teaching, but addressing this particular thing. As we studied last week, the intent for us as pastors is to equip you, to equip the saints, those who are born again, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, with the gospel so that we could leave this place and go share the gospel with others, to be able to share the word of God with others. And it's at this particular time that individuals can attack you, the gospel proclamation would been able to attack the fundamental understanding of whether or not the Bible is inerrant, it's infallible, it means it's without error, without mis- mistake. And so the key here is, is that if, if this is a mistake, then does that undermine everything? And so one of the things I'd want you to be able to say, uh, or one of the things I want you to be able to understand this morning is, hopefully by this time, some of, uh, see newer faces here that don't know, to know myself, Pastor Tim, or history of our church, is that we, we are men who love the Bible, who believe the Bible is inspired by God, has been preserved by the power of His Holy Spirit, that's inerrant and it's infallible, so without error, without 
mistake. And so it's, it's been given to us. It provides everything. It's been given to us to aid us. It provides everything that we need for life and salvation and godliness. And so when we uh, uh, love the word of God, trust the word of God, and believe the word of God, and we do not believe that you can just pick certain portions of Scripture and believe these are true and not believe others are true. However, the question then is, has to be posed is if these are not in the earlier manuscripts, then it begins to cast doubt on whether or not these are actually inspired Scripture. And so that's the question. So the question for us isn't, so I don't want you hearing we're theological liberals. I don't want you hearing that we just pick and choose, that this is uh, pretty rare, especially of this particular section of Scripture. This length of a passage is extremely rare. Uh, we have came across something very similar to this, if you remember back in um, John chapter 5 with the healing of the man at the pool. Uh, if you go back to that particular passage, you remember at the end of chapter or, or verse 5, there's a latter portion of verse uh, 3 and 4 that was not, uh, that was not uh, listed in the Scripture, and I just had a footnote at the bottom of the page. And so there are some minor variances throughout the entire Bible where there would be questions about authenticity but as far as large sections of Scripture, there's only two of them. And one is the one that's before you today. So one is before you, John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11. You'll see a very similar section of Scripture that's called into question whether or not uh, it's uh, authentic to the Scripture is going to be found in Mark chapter 16. It's the very last chapter of the book of Mark, beginning in verse 9 through 20. And so there's questions about Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20, that will have the same bracketing that you'll see as this particular section does with a note. Earlier manuscripts do not include Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Uh, And it's, uh, as a a note, there's a footnote. And so if yours isn't bracketed, it probably is. But if it isn't bracketed, it's probably a a footnote. And if it is like mine, it's bracketed and it has a footnote. And it has a a subtitle in there to, to, to bring attention to this particular portion of Scripture. Well, that's why we thought it would be important to be able to help us, to be able to say, well, how do you, how do you understand this? And how are we to believe this? And what are we supposed to understand about this? And so that's our goal. That's what our intent is to be able to, to encourage us so that, hear me say this, we don't have an opportunity just to pick and choose. We don't have an opportunity to be able to say, well, I'm going to believe this portion of Scripture and I'm not going to believe this portion of Scripture. It's for us to be able to say, what does the Bible communicate? What is the Bible? And, and the best we can understand in its original um, manuscripts, the original manuscripts do not exist today. So we've got um, co- uh, uh, um, copies of it uh, that we can be able to see and, and many, 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 many copies of it to help us to be able to uh, have great confidence, almost absolute certainty, uh, not 100% because we don't have the originals, but like 99.99% certainty that this is exactly what the God had penned for us and he has preserved it by the power of his Holy Spirit so that what we're reading today we can understand. And so that's where we're going to dive in today is I want you to have confidence with, uh, with the Scripture, but then what do we do with a passage like this morning? Uh, this I'll also know, just by way of disclaimer, is that this is a very well-known passage that if you've been, I'm not even saying you have to be a Christian to be familiar with this passage, but if you've been or anyone who uh, is familiar with Christianity or owns a Bible, this is going to be a passage that's been brought up on numerous occasions. And so I know I'm, I'm, I'm treading in areas where people have a lot of familiarity with, and so I want to make sure that I'm very, very clear in what is being communicated. And so 
The question on the table is this, is that is this portion of Scripture authentic? Meaning, was this portion of Scripture a part of the original text as was written by the Apostle John? That's what's going to be on the table today. If we were to have, which we do not, but if we were to have the original autographs, what you call the original manuscript, the original autograph, the original uh, gospel that John had penned, would this particular passage be in that gospel narrative? If we answer that question, yes, then John chapter 7, verse 53 to John chapter 8, verse 11 is inspired and is the very word of God. If it is, if it was, then it's the word of God and we should treat it like we treat every other passage. If it's not, and this is the reason they're bringing uh, highlighting this to be able to make sure that it, the readers are aware that may or may not be, and that for reader beware, if you will, that uh, the editors in these um, newer manuscripts, these newer Bible versions, Bible translations, not newer Bibles, but newer translations, want to make sure that there's at least uh, understand that there's, there's question about it, then if it's not, this is why they want to bring it to our attention. And it would be that it would be uninspired, and therefore would not be the very word of God and was inserted or was added into the Bible later. And so the, once you can hear what the, the, the take on this is, the take is, isn't this Bible's being taken, the script passage is being taken out of the Bible potentially, right? The intent is that this was added later and so it needs to be made known that it was not a part of the original. Okay, so that's what the, the argument is going to be. And so this is an argument that... Um, Godly men across the board have disagreement on in this, this situation. I will share with you uh, at the very end where I land uh, um, and begin to navigate through some of that, but I just want you to begin to get here some of the examples. And so uh, it's clearly in the, the text that you hold within your hand. It's now have cautions beside it, right? But it's still included in the text. Uh, and so ultimately there's the editors who are leaving it in for a purpose. But let's look at then some who would put it into question. Don Carson, who teaches at Trinity, uh, a very uh, uh, wise New Testament scholar, one of the best in the world, says, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them, and modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. And so Don Carson would say that that was... um, and you may not be familiar with who Don Carson is, but ultimately he would say that it is not. And they were right to at least put it as a footnote, if not to remove it entirely from, like the NIV does, from the uh, pages of Scripture. Bruce Metzger, one of the world's greatest authorities on the text of the New Testament until his death in 2002, says the evidence for the non-Johannine uh, origin of the periscope, or the periscope is the word, it means the, the section of Scripture, of the adulteress is overwhelming so basically saying uh, it's over the it's overwhelming to be able to see the support to be able to communicate that this is non-johanna i mean it wasn't written by the god uh the apostle john and it's not original uh to the text itself and so leon morris says the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel and then Andreas Kostenberger says this represents overwhelming evidence that this section is non-Johannine. And then uh, finally, Anne Herman 
Ritterboss says the evidence uh, point, the evidences point to an unstable tradition that was not originally a part of the ecclesiastically accepted text. All that simply to be able to communicate that there is questions surrounding whether or not this particular passage was in its original form, which then brings us to our notes this morning. First thing I want us to look at is the authenticity of this passage as an original part of John's gospel is debated. So simply stated, that's not uh, hard to be able to make sure that we land on an answer there, that clearly there's debate, uh, so much so, uh, so there's debate about whether this would be in the original, so much so that there are uh, uh, editors within the Bible that's either removing this section completely as it is with the NIV or at least bracketing it and making sure it's very clear in the text, before the text, bracketed in the context of the text, and then at the footnote at the bottom of the page to bring clarity to this particular passage. So at the very minimum, we understand that the authenticity of this passage is in question as to whether or not it's the original part of John's gospel and that it's debated whether or not it is or it isn't. So let's then begin to try to unpack that for ourselves this morning. Let's look at the internal evidence within the text. The internal evidence within the text. The first thing we want to look at as we look at the internal evidence within the text, that it appears that this passage, the reason it would be bracketed, is that this passage or this section of Scripture about the woman caught in adultery disrupts continuity of the narrative. It disrupts continuity of the narrative. So if you remember as we're walking through, we're, we're at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, and Jesus is proclaiming who he is. And he just communicated on the very last day of the feast. If you go back to John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he begins to communicate to them that it's the, if they do, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living Water And so there created much debate and people wanted to arrest them. And the, the, the Pharisees had been sent out and as the Pharisees were being sent out. I mean, the um, the officers were being sent out by the Pharisees to arrest him and they come back empty handed. And then the Pharisees began to um, uh, ridicule them and be sarcastic toward them that whether or not. Why can't you believe? Why are you believing in him? None of the Pharisees and the leaders are believing in him. And uh, have you seen any authorities of the Pharisees believe in him? And so then you see Nicodemus begin to defend Christ to them as at least it relates to the law of God. First of all, he should uh, first get a hearing before uh, and learning who what he does before they would bring judgments and want to arrest him. Remember, they were already trying to kill him at this particular point. And then they challenged him. Are you from Galilee too? search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee? Well, if you were to skip this particular passage and begin in verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And these, the imagery on both of those, the living water, light of the world, seems to flow very well, seems to flow seamlessly. That he's attempting to uh, use the um, uh, portions of the feasts and uh, uh, things that would surround uh, the traditions that would surround the feast and the, the scripture that would be utilized in the context of the feast to point to himself things that would be imagery or types. And so as a result, this would then break that up and it, bring in, uh, it could bring disruption to the continuity of the text. Whereas, and when you begin to include this passage in, it says after they wanted to uh, arrest him and their officers came back and then Nicodemus stands up for him and you see that, that they said they, in verse 52, they replied, the Pharisees replied to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet, prophet arises from Galilee. Well, at that particular point, they went each to his own house Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple and the people came to him and said, uh, came to him and he sat down and taught them. 
Now, you think, well, I mean, that could happen. Well, the reality is, is that the imagery that would be related to the feast would be over. The feast would be over. Remember, this was the last day. If you go back to verse 30, the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And so for him to be addressing the masses that would have been there this particular time for the feast, they would be beginning to make their way back home. The feast would be concluded. And so it begins to disrupt the particular passage that's there. Then it seems like it makes more sense to see that passage not listed there than to have that passage listed in this particular section of Scripture. So that would be one internal evidence, is that it disrupts continuity of the narrative. Number two, there's different vocabulary and usage within this gospel. So this particular portion of scripture, John seven fifty three through eight eleven, would use different vocabulary and different usage of, of words that were not found anywhere else in the gospel of John. For example, as you uh, look at chapters um, uh, 8, verse 3, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Well, if you begin to look at that, nowhere else in 21 chapters of the Gospel of John does John ever refer to the scribes. And so if this passage or this particular section was added later, then, of course, it 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 would bring a distinction there that how come as he's talking about Pharisees all throughout the Gospel of John, 21 chapters, that scribes isn't listed in tandem with the Pharisees anywhere else other than this one particular passage. It's not only the scribes, there's 13 other words in this short section that are not found anywhere else in John's gospel. So as you look at chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, 11, those 12 verses, there's 13 additional words besides the use of scribes that's not found anywhere else in John's gospel. Quite the opposite, you begin to see that, and I'll, this will make more sense in just a moment, but the language is actually maybe more similar to Luke's vocabulary and to Luke's writing than to John's. And then number three, as far as internal evidence, we're looking just as in the context of this particular passage, as it's found in your Bibles, you're beginning to see, is there a discontinuity there? Does it disrupt continuity? Uh, Is there different vocabulary than from words that were being used throughout the remainder of the text? And all that can be seen internally. But there's also a dilemma that's put before us, a dilemma that's put before us uh, that uh, is creating a dilemma that may not actually be a dilemma at all. And let me, let me explain. So as you're walking through this, they bring before him a woman caught in adultery and place her in the midst. They say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And then they begin to put before him the dilemma. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him. They might bring some charge against him. And then Jesus once again bends down and they... He begins to write something in the, in the, on the ground, and then they, they keep pressing him. They want him to give an answer, and so he stands up. And when he stands up, he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends down again and begins to write in the ground, and then they eventually from the oldest, uh, from the older ones to the very youngest of the, of the Pharisees leave, scribes and Pharisees leave. So there's no one left, and he says, Is there anyone that's going to condemn you? Where are they? Has anyone condemned? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Well, the dilemma that's presented is this. You either, you either um, walk with what the Bible, the Old Testament says, right? And then what the Old Testament is communicating to us is that we should command such a woman, right? Or that you do not. 
And so if you're a man who preaches grace, you're a man who forgives sins, it's been seen another particular time, then there's a dilemma. You either obey what the law says, the law of God says, or you obey what the Romans say. Now, but here's the problem. It's a false dichotomy. There is no dilemma. Now, let me explain. Who is ruling at this particular time? This is uh, audience participation. Who is actually running the civil affairs? Uh, the the, the um, Sanhedrin works in conjunction, but they don't run it outright. They don't have uh, full authority. They're kind of working and overseeing the Jewish portions of it. But they're under a different authority. Who's actually over providing oversight over all of the land? Who? The Romans, right? So the Romans are the ones that are in, in power there. So much so that they don't have the authority to be able to accomplish what? Capital punishment. This is why they need Pontius Pilate to sign off on even Jesus' death coming. So they show up with rocks in their hands, right? They're ready to stone her, as you see in all the movies. And they're uh, communicating that, man, that she needs to, uh, to be able to stone her. And so that ultimately, uh, man, you want to stone her? Then cast the first stone. But the reality is that they weren't going to be the ones that are going to stone her anyway. They would have to take her to the authorities. And the authorities at that particular time would be the Romans. And they would be the ones who would bring judgment upon her. It would be a false dichotomy. It's not a real dilemma. It's not a real debate that's be take, that would be taking place. And so it'd be it's communicating to us. Somebody would, would be able to say, hey, the, the Bible speaks of those who commit murder. And that we should stone, we should murder those who murder others. And so you bring them before Pastor Tim and I, and you say, we're going to trap them here. So what we're going to do, we're going to trap them. And so as a result of this, this person was called in murder. And so should we murder them? What do you say, Pastor Tim and Pastor Kevin? And we'd say, well, uh, I mean, the Bible says you shouldn't murder. And so you shouldn't murder. But now they've already murdered. Well, I don't think it's in our power and our authority to not honor the governing authorities, I think you should take them to the authorities and let them be tried. That's what I think we should do. Not that you and I would stone them immediately or that you and I should murder them because they murdered someone else. That's not how this process works. And so the whole situation doesn't make sense in the context because they didn't have the ability right then at that particular moment to stone her anyway. They would be breaking the law and they would be then going to be punished by the Romans themselves. Rome ruled over this. And Rome at this particular time did not have uh, laws of capital punishment for those who committed adultery. And so there's really not a dilemma here. As we would read it, we look into it and be like, oh, yeah, they're trapping Jesus. And, man, he's so smart and so wise that he was able to get out of this trap. But the reality, the problem was there is that they, they weren't going to be able to stone her anyway. And then the Romans didn't care. And so the issue wasn't an issue. Second... It puts a, another dilemma on this if we were to take it at face value that when can anyone com, uh, challenge others about sin if all of us have to be perfect and sinless in order to do so? Imagine that in, in church discipline processes. We can never discipline anyone because why? Well, Pastor Tim and myself and their church membership as a whole that would eventually excommunicate a person from membership could never then bring judgment upon someone because why? Who, who, which one of us could be able to, to cast a stone toward their judgment, could be able to bring clarity to a situation, could ever hold them accountable to sinfulness if we ourselves have ever sinned in our past. And so it poses, it poses a problem. 
And so the internal evidence within the text begins to make a question about whether or not this would be authentic. But that's not just the internal evidence. Look at the external evidence outside the text, meaning that this is not something you could be able to see from your English translation. So what external evidences would, would be brought to us that maybe to put into question in this debate of whether or not this is um, actually was included in the original inspired version of John's gospel. We see that the early manuscripts do not include the passage. This is what's found, and that's even in the context of what's being printed by the editor is in your notes, right? So above mine, it says a little bracketed section before. Uh, the subtitle in the passage of chapter 8 says, The Woman Caught in Adultery, right above that. And my translation of the ESV says, The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, 53, verse 8, 11. And so uh, virtually uh, this particular passage is uh, chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, this entire section here, is missing from all Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. And so as we're gathering up um, manuscripts and being able to understand the, the, the Bible as we, we understand it, then everything prior to the 5th century does not include this particular manuscript. And so these earlier manuscripts, which would be closer to the time when it was penned, which many Bible scholars believe those would be the better manuscripts, would be the best manuscripts, would be the earlier manuscripts, do not include this particular passage, which begins, makes us have uh, questions of whether or not it was authentic to the original. So number one, it was not in the earlier manuscripts. And here's number two, various manuscripts of these, uh, these, all these manuscripts that are brought together that helps us to be able to discern what's actually in the Bible and what's not. Various manuscripts have the passage in differing locations. Differing locations. And once again, it may have this in your, in your notes at the bottom of the page. It is in mine. It may not be included in yours. And at the bottom of the page of, of my Bible, it says, has a footnote there, and it says, some manuscripts do not include chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11. Others add the passage here. Or after 7.36, I found it can be, uh, so 7.36 meaning John chapter 7, verse 36. So instead of waiting to verse 52, it's put earlier in John chapter 7, and it's in verse 36. Some translations have it in verse, after verse 44 of John's gospel. Some have it after John chapter 21, verse 25. That's the last verse in all of John's gospel. And so it's just going to be tagged at the end uh, at the, of the uh, gospel. Or even... After Luke chapter 21, verse 38. So it's not that it just moves around in the context of John. It's even in another gospel. It's in Luke's gospel, not in John's gospel. And so as you begin to look, and then some even have it at the very end of, of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, verse 53. Point that out simply to be able to communicate. It gives also more, another reason why people would put question this as one that's original to John's intent, whether it was original to John's uh, gospel as he wrote it, because it shows up in different places, even the gospel of John. You would think there would be consistency again and again and again and again. If it was in the original manuscript and they were simply translating this or, or copying this again and again or translating this in the other languages, that it would continue to remain in the same location. But it's moving around as if some scribe later wanted to include it and didn't know where to put it. And so that would be a second external evidence uh, that would begin to uh, question whether or not this is authentic. And then number three, a lack of commentary from church fathers regarding the passage. 
a lack of commentary from church fathers regarding the passage. Now, we would say that that's commentary would be no different than my commenting on this, right? A pastor preaching about it. Uh, previous pastors and previous church leaders commenting on this. We know that's not inspired, but the reality of the history could maybe demonstrate something to us, right? The history of others preaching sermons and, and bringing commentary as they go verse by verse by verse through Scripture passages, and they're trying to bring explanation to them, might give us some understanding, and, and it helps us here. No Eastern church father commented on the section until the 10th century. And even then, his comments uh, regarding this particular passage was that accurate Greek manuscripts did not contain it. And so the first commentary that you see in the, is, uh, the Eastern church father would be in the 10th century. And even then, he communicates that the earliest manuscripts would not, conc- would not include it. And so you're beginning to see that even during that time, we remember we don't see it anywhere before the 5th century. And then it's now to the 10th century you see church fathers speaking about it. And then when they speak about it, there's still a caution behind it that it was not in the earlier manuscripts. And so those are internal and external evidences that would begin to put doubt on whether or not this particular section is inspired. And so therefore, the authenticity of it's debated as it's the original part of John's gospel. Now, this begs the question before we move to point two. Well, then what if you don't line up with them? What if you don't begin to see what that you just man, I, uh, I don't want to say it's not there. And what would be some of the debates as it relates to that? Well, one would be the sheer number of manuscripts that this passage is included in is one of the arguments that it should remain is that it's it may not have been in the earlier ones, but when it did show up, it was everywhere. And so there's a sheer number of manuscripts include this particular passage is overwhelming to the ones that uh, did not include it, right? And so that would be one of the arguments for that. Now, the explanation behind that could simply be, and is, is given, that ultimately, of course, the ones, if it was added later, and it was now continuing to be put forth after that, then the the copies of the copies from those after the time it was inserted, well, clearly are going to include it. And the older versions, which are the best, better versions, are the ones that did not include it. And of course, if there's a mistake made later, or it was added later, then it's going to continue to be perpetuated on and on and on and on from that moment forward. Some would say then, that was one argument, well, there's just a bunch of them, a bunch of copies that include this particular passage. Others would say then, in the defense of it, it was actually there in the original autographs. John did have it. And somewhere along the line, uh, it was removed by early church fathers due to its leniency on adultery. And because of its leniency on adultery, we didn't want anybody thinking that this thing might get out of hand and people would begin to think, well, this, you know, you can be forgiven and just move on. Uh, so we, we don't want that to be the case. We don't want to be leniency on there. So it was removed at some point. And then it was through careful um, scholars that ended up putting it back, even though we don't see it in a short section between the first, first century and the fifth century. It wasn't until the fifth century that it was put back in the passage. And so... That would be another debate. The problem with that is twofold. One, why is the entire passage removed? There's no adultery in verse 53 and in, in, in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. That could have stayed, could it not? Think, now, just read it in its entirety. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. And then you could skip to verse 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying. So if the... If that's true, and there's just an issue about leniency, then why do you take out John chapter 7, verse 53, and chapter 8, verse 1, and 8, verse 2? 
they could remain if that was the case unless the entire section was added and it uh, went um, carte blanche. It went together, right? And so we want to get to be something to be able to think through. The second thing, reason that, uh, that, 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 that that particular um, explanation doesn't hold water is this. If the issue was a person that was caught in adultery or some form of sexual sin, then what about the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Shouldn't she, in certain ways, be even more condemned? I believe Jesus was probably even more lenient on her than he was even of the woman caught in adultery. Now, she wasn't caught in the very act, but she already has five husbands, and the one she's living with is not her husband. Clearly fornication. What about her? And it's clearly, there's no debate whether that's in the Scripture. That one's left alone. Do we just give her a pass because she's a Samaritan woman? And if so, then Jesus just picks and chooses? Or is the issue here that it's not about leniency on adultery, but it wasn't that it was in the original manuscripts to begin with? Now, all of that debate could could begin to make you think, how do I know what's in my Bible? Is actually the word of God, because that's where antagonists, agnostics are going to go. It's where atheists are going to go. Antagonists to the Bible are going to attempt to lead you. And it's at that particular time that I think the next section of Scripture is helpful for us. Or the next section of, of, our, of our topic, our, our theme this morning, the next section of our notes is helpful. It's not Scripture. The next, the next section of our notes is helpful. And at this point of time, before we move into that, I, I think you may already know my stance. I would agree with our editors, that I do not believe this is, is inspired by God. That this is inspired Scripture. I believe that it was added at some point later. And as a result of that, um, uh, it's it been included and it's been continued to be handed down from there. And it does break up the flow and it does have different vocabulary. And there's got a false dilemma that's taken place, the external evidences, uh, that it was not included in the earlier manuscripts, that it moved around the, con- the context uh, and that ultimately there's the lack of commentary. All And then the arguments that are made for it don't really hold water in my mind. So all that to be able to say that I would agree with those particular uh, commentators and pastors that uh, I do not believe it was a part of the original manuscript. So I'm not taking it out. I don't believe it was ever in there to begin with. Whether or not it's whether you land or not. And I, let me say this before I even communicate that. I want you to remind you I don't just treat this way all throughout the scripture. I don't just pick and choose what to believe. There's, there's lots of warrant here that I'm trying to build a case for. And the two largest sections I've communicated, Mark chapter 16, I also believe that about Mark 16, 9 through 20. I don't believe it's there. And there's a whole other sermon we could do, a whole other teaching that could be able to communicate that as well. But those are, those are minor passages with lots of, of evidences that would be able to communicate that. I don't just pick and choose the ones that I like to teach or like to believe and not. There's reasons even so much so that editors who would want to sell Bibles and that would also want to help people by putting Bibles in their hand or have so much evidence. They say, well, we might need to actually put some kind of footnote in here to make sure everyone is aware and let them decide on their own. So I'm not just picking and choosing what I want to believe or what I don't believe. I want to believe all the Bible unless there's substantial evidence that would lead me not to. And there's only two major passages with a whole host of scriptures that would be there. And that's the one we're in today in Mark 16, as I've already communicated. So I want to bring encouragement. I'm not a theological liberal that says you can pick and choose what you should believe. You should believe all the Bible. The question is, is it all inspired? And I don't believe these two passages, Mark 16 and this one in Luke 7 or John 7, are inspired or part of the original manuscript. 
Now, if that's the case, that's the case, then should we trust the Bibles that are in our hands? What if there's, I mean, what if there's like lots of other mistakes too? And they're foundational to things that we should believe and maybe we're in error. Or what if, what if, like, if the whole thing's just a sham so that you can be full-time pastors and get paid to, to study a Bible while the rest of us have to do real work? Might be the thought. Well, that's why I want you to see the next portion. Our first theme was the authenticity of this passage in the original part of John's gospel was debated. But then I also want you to see the reliability of the Bible in light of such variances, in light of such uh, uh, section of Scripture that it could be debated, is overwhelmingly supported. The reliability of the Bible, even in light of such a question as this particular passage, the reliability of the Bible in light of this, and even in spite of this, is that the Bible is overwhelmingly supported, that it is reliable and trustworthy. Um, with the time I have left, let me just walk you through a little bit of that. And as I share this, I know some of this could be technical, but I want to empower you, regardless of where you stand on John chapter 7 or where you stand on Mark chapter 16, if you disagree with me, that's fine. You're not going to hell or I'm not going to hell. I believe in the fundamentals of the gospel, right? Um, I'm trusting the finished work of Christ on the cross for my salvation, and I am a sinner, and God is holy, and he must punish sin and sinners alike. And it was for the sinless life of Christ who came as a vir- uh, came born of a virgin, lived a sinless life in full obedience to God the Father, died a sacrificial death for all who would repent and believe. Uh, God's wrath, just wrath against sin was put upon Christ, and it was paid in full. All the sin debt was paid in full for all who would repent and believe. And he rose again, conquering death, hell, and the grave, and demonstrated that the, the, he had appeased the wrath of God and then ascended on high to the right hand of the Father where he's currently making intercession for the saints. And for any who will understand the true biblical gospel, repent of their sins and believe in that gospel, shall be saved. So why don't we agree or disagree on this particular passage? We can agree on the fundamental essence of the gospel. And that if you, we do have disagreement and we do have debate on this particular passage, or even Mark chapter 16, doesn't mean that either one of us are eternally damned because of that, eternally sent to hell because of that. But I do believe it's important. And I do believe we need to be able to understand how to interact with this passage because you are, just like we talked about last week, as you go to share Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is controversial. He's, he's one who brings division. He himself said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Not meaning that you can't have peace with God. He did come for that too. He meant as you have walk this world uh, that's of the devil, that's marred by sin, that's being under sway and people are being blinded by the, the prince of the peace, the power of the heirs, by Satan himself, that ultimately there's going to be conflict if you trust Jesus, if you live for Jesus. And in the same way, as you're out in this world that has conflict with him, we need to know that what we have in our hands and what we teach is actually the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And if you don't know that, you're not going to have confidence. And I want you to know it, and I want you to have confidence, even in light of passages that we studied today. And so, what should we do? What, how should we think through this? How, how should we begin to navigate with this? And uh, I think part of this will help us to be able to just to understand how you got the Bible into your hands to begin with. And then we're going to walk through the notes. So this next section is not notes. Just listen or take notes if you would like. This will be able to help you. As we think through Bible and Bible times, we know that ultimately over the past uh, uh, hundreds of years or even thousands of years, that the, the promised land and the Jews themselves have been under different rule, right? 
So ultimately, you, you saw the, uh, uh, the Assyrians come in and take the tackle of the northern kingdom. And then shortly thereafter, the southern kingdom fell to, fell to the Babylonians. And the Babylonians began to rule the world at that particular time. Shortly after that, there was an alliance between the Medes and the Persians. It was called the, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Uh, spoken of in the book of Daniel. And so you see the Babylonians and the Middle Persians. Then you begin to see the Greeks take over. And it's saying, why do I even care about this? It makes sense. I'm gonna, you're going to make sense here. And when the Greeks took over, they spoke. Okay, start again. When the Greeks took over, they spoke Greek, right? Which is how the new, what the New Testament was written in. Now, eventually, the Romans take over. And the Romans don't speak Greek. They speak Latin. But ultimately... Uh, as we're thinking through this portion of time, even though the Romans were ruling, ultimately the Greeks were still the trade language and therefore the language of the common man. And so God, uh, in his infinite wisdom, decides to give the Bible in the language of the common man so that more people could begin to understand it. So therefore, the New Testament was written in Greek. However, over time, as you're thinking through uh, the translation of the Bible into different languages, the influence of the Romans, which spoke Latin, spoke Latin, uh, translated it into Latin, which is what you get, the Latin Vulgate, if you're familiar with terms. The Latin Vulgate became known as, and it became the official language of the church. All right, so you're thinking through that. Then as you're thinking about the translation of the Bible, uh, you're, the Bible's being translated into a myriad of different languages that, are, that are, are coming out and they will be over the course of history, which is think of some major events that are related to Bible translations. And so one would be the prominence of the Latin Vulgate. Remember, if Rome's ruling everything... And eventually, the language is, trans, is, is transferring from Greek to Latin. And ultimately, uh, Latin and the Latin Vulgate, a Latin translation of the Bible, is going to be very imp- important. And so then in 382, St. Jerome translated the, Bible, the best available Greek manuscripts into Latin. This version became known as the Latin Vulgate, as I mentioned earlier. The Latin Vulgate came to hold prominence in the church for over a thousand years, being officially declared in 1592 as the standard Bible text of the Roman Catholic Church. That's important, right? As you continue on, you begin to see then in the early, early 16th century, due to the influence of the Renaissance, there was a renewed interest in classical Greek philosophy. So as you're thinking about this, uh, that people didn't, have, didn't speak Greek any longer. They spoke Latin, and then they had Latin translations, which was the Latin Vulgate. But now they begin to be a, 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 a renewal to want to go back to Greek philosophy, all right? To, to, to hearken back. There was a Renaissance. There was a beginning to be able to go back and, and, and uh, uh, seek out the Greek New Testament. As a result, in 1516, Erasmus compiled a Greek manuscript collection which came to known as the Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus. So Erasmus um, pulls the scriptures together or the Greek manuscripts together and he forms what is called the Textus Receptus. Now, this is important too because at this particular time in 1516, what do you also have which is different than any other time in human history that we can eventually produce Bibles even faster? Printing press. So you're seeing in 1516 is where the printing press is going to be continuing to print Bibles, right? And so, and lots of them. And so you begin to think about one of the questions about debate. There's so many translations and so many versions uh, that include um, uh, the, this particular passage. It can dominate, right, uh, the people at this particular time. Which, if this, this passage was included, more and more people be getting familiar with this particular passage. At the time, Erasmus uh, translated it into Greek. Uh, or translated it, and the Texas Receptus, uh, Erasmus only had access to six Greek manuscripts and had to translate even the last few verses in Revelation from Latin, Latin Vulgate into Greek. He didn't even have the Greek translation itself. So he had 
the Latin Vulgate and translates the last few sections in, uh, uh, into Greek from, the, from Latin. Furthermore, Erasmus adjusted the text in many places to correspond with readings found in the Vulgate, simply meaning he didn't have a ton of resources to be able to pull from as he was translating this particular um, translation, which was called the Textus Receptus. You think, well, that's wonderful. I don't see how any of this has precedence on, on how, what we're talking about today. Okay, here's where it comes together for us. The King James Version is an English translation which was officially, officially began in 1604 and was famously completed in 1611. That's why you talk about the 1611 King James Version Bible. The King James Version translation in English is based on the Textus Receptus Greek text. And so you're saying, you're ta- what you're taking here is a limited number of manuscripts, only six, where it's been translated, and it didn't have everything that he needed. So he's translating some from the Latin Vulgate, and he's rearranging it in certain ways, and then this is what happens with King, what we have in the King James Version. Well, now, over time, there's more discoveries, there's more access to, uh, you, you, uh, to other um, uh, translations as well and other manuscripts. And today we have access to over 5,000 manuscripts of Greek New Testament, many of which are older than the six manuscripts available to Erasmus at that particular time. So what we're trying to say is there's more evidence to be able to say whether or not this would be the correct one. So clearly, the 1611 King James included uh, this particular passage, which is why it's in our Bible today, which is why it's in our Bible today. It was in the Texas Receptus, and so this is why it's in our New Testament as we have it today. But the reality is we have far more manuscripts. We went from six to over 5,000 that we can be able to compare these to. What, why do we even communicate all that? Well, this is why you, I want you to be able to see the the confidence and reliability that we have in the Scripture. The reliability that we have that the Bible is what it is, and even though there's variances there, why should we have confidence? And this goes back to your notes, is that the number and the antiquity of the New Testament manuscripts, the number and the antiquity of the New, Test, uh, of the, um, New Testament manuscripts, and so the sheer volume of the information that we have gives us confidence as far as the reliability of the Bible. And how old they are gives us confidence as, we, as it relates to why we have the Bible. Now, remember, I told you, we don't have the original documents. We don't, know, we don't have the very papers that in the, uh, the parchments that, were, that the New Testament was written on. We only have um, manuscripts that follow that. We don't have the original autographs. And so uh, those original autographs, all of us believe, were inspired and inerrant. They were with, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they were without error. But yet, at the same time, we have thousands and thousands of copies uh, of uh, copies and citations and documents uh, that have allowed us to be able to recreate these original autographs with 99.99% accuracy. So let me explain. When we think about the sheer number and the, and the volume uh, of this, no other document, sacred or, or um, secular, has the amount of number of copies as our New Testament or as our, our Bible has. Now, think about this. As you're just thinking through the process, the abundance of these manuscripts of the New Testament or the parts of the New Testament as compared to the number of manuscripts from all other ancient works is simply staggering. It's overwhelming what we have as a Bible versus what uh, other trusted old, old documents have. For example, there are 10 existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. So those were supposed to be composed sometime between 58 and 50 B.C. So from 58 to 50 B.C., there's only 10 remaining manuscripts, not the originals, but manuscripts that were made copies of this that was, that was 
Harken back to 58 to 50. Ten. Ten. And all of these date from the 10th century or later. So we're talking 50 to 58 B.C. And we don't even have copies until the 10th century. So there's a huge gap of 10 centuries. Ten centuries. And we only have 10 copies, right, that's navigating through this. And so the question is, there's a huge gap in time. And there's a huge gap in uh, manuscripts to compare to be able to say that if were there any mistakes made and this huge thing. Yet at the same time, we believe as a people, as a society, that these were actually the words of Julius Caesar in the Gallic Wars. And well, if we're willing to believe that with such little evidence, so far separated from the time of the, when it was supposed to be originally written, man, everything pales in comparison to the Bible. Pales in comparison. That's not the only one. There are 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history written roughly during the time when Jesus was alive. So it doesn't say the date here as far as uh, when those documents, what's the earliest version of the document, but simply at the very time of Jesus, Livy's Roman history only has 20 manuscripts, regardless of how far they were separated from when um, the time they were supposedly actually written. Only two manuscripts exist from Tacitus' history and the annals, which were composed around AD 100. So you Two manuscripts uh, around AD 100 and one from the 9th century and one from the 11th century. So once again, you have eight centuries to uh, 10 centuries separating the latest, man- the earliest manuscripts that we have or the only manuscripts that we have from when it was originally written. And then there are only eight manuscripts of the history of, uh, 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 let's get this name right, Thucydides, who lived 460 to 400 B. C. Now, that's what we're willing to take and say, hey, these were this, the, the original documents, or they're not original, but these were, we believe this to be the very words of these various authors. Now, compare those numbers with the manuscripts and partial manuscripts for the New Testament. These are the numbers from the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Munster, Germany, which is the most authoritative collection of such data in the world. There are 322 uncial texts and 2,907 minuscule texts, this means that one's written in lowercase and one's written in uppercase. That's all that those, those texts mean. So there's 322 of one, 2,907 of the other, 2,445 lectionary portions, and 127 papyri for a total of 5,801 manuscripts. These are all handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament preserved in libraries around the world and now captured electronically. No other ancient book comes close to this kind of wealth of diverse preservation, both not only in sheer number, but then also the old ver- oldest versions that harken back to the very closest, closer than any other to the original time that the, the, the uh, authors would have written it back in the first century. Why not communicate that to you? So we have a, lot, a wealth of information to be able to compare. Now, you may say, yes, but when we compare, we understand that there are problems when we compare. And I would say, I absolutely agree with you. You say, well, what do you mean? Is there lots and lots of problems? No. We are humans, right? I have a job and I do my job. Sometimes I make errors. I make mistakes. It's not intentional. It could be an oversight, mess, a mess up, maybe an issue or a problem. Might've gotten distracted, might've restarted. There can be a whole issue of things that take, that take place. Could be a translation problem. This looks like it should say this and actually becomes says this, and so I'm not sure if this is what's the case. And so uh, I don't know if this would 
should, should be able to happen. And let me give you an example of that. So you say you're a scribe, and you're coming to the point where it says that uh, it's, it's more possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. You're familiar with that passage? Well, the word there for camel with just a small adjustment in the Greek could be translated to cord. And so if you're a scribe, you're walking through this, all right, man, it's camel, but I wonder if the previous scribe got this wrong and it shouldn't say camel. I wonder if it should say cord. Clearly, it's more obvious it should be cord. And so this whole argument is what you call textual criticism, right? And so you're, you're walking through this. They're having to think through what, how, what should be there, what shouldn't be there, and how do we begin to navigate through this whole portion of, of Scripture. But as you begin to look at the context, clearly the whole point is it's impossible for a person to get to heaven apart from God's help. So clearly the better translation should be what? Camel not cord, right? And so as you're walking through this, these are the issues. So as we're thinking through this process, the sheer volume helps us with that, which leads then to your second point. The number and antiquity of New Testament manuscripts gives us confidence that our Bible is trustworthy. There's, um, if you think about all translations that are out there, there's like 25,000 manuscripts that can, we can be able to pull from. 5,000 as we're looking at the Greek, the Greek text here to aid us in this process of walking through translation issues. And so as we're thinking through this, the reliability is not just that we have a lot and that they're old, but then we were able then to compare them to be able to talk about problems arise. And so the integrity, as you notes, and the transparency and textual criticism gives us reliability. The integrity and the transparency within this gives us reliability, meaning we know what's out there. We know when there is discrepancies and we know when there are variances and they're, and they're easily, uh, based on the sheer number of volume, that we, not can, we can't just compare this text with five others like Erasmus had, we've got this copy with 5,801 other copies and portions of Scripture that we can now compare all the wealth of information to make sure that what we have before us is absolutely certain. This is why then there's a portion in your text that says, hey, just a caution so you know, we're not trying to cover anything up. There's no conspiracies. This isn't new to anybody. We just want you to have all the facts. For us... It's now a matter of reader beware. And this is what I love about the history of the Bible. The inspiration of the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit is also, we're encouraged not only that the inspiration of it, but the preservation of it, that God has preserved his word far more than any other document that now it's placed into our hands. But now we have all this ability for us to be able to criticize the text, some negatively, but mostly positively, so that we can be able to stand with absolute certainty that the Bible is reliable. And so, yes, they can be able to look and say, oh, this is a variance, and this is a variance, and this is a variance, but all these other copies are communi- communicating something different. This scribe must have made a mistake, and therefore we, we can be able to deduct from all the, and infer from all this information uh, and basically recreate what the, we, the original text would have said by the sheer volume that God has brought us. And so, once again, it should give you encouragement that no one's trying to hide this. There's no conspiracy theory in this, because why? The authors of, uh, not the authors, but the editors of the Bible is wanting to make sure that it's placed within our hand and there's enough Greek scholars around that can be able to help us uh, and there's enough of uh, the Bible preserved for us because God wanted his word to be preserved. Which then leads to uh, the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible is certain. It is without error. We can trust it. But even so much so that the editors are putting in your Bible this information from the textual criticism to say, I just want you to know there's a question about this 
section here. There's a question about Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And we don't want you to have any questions about it. There's no, nothing we're hiding. There's integrity and transparency. We believe the Bible to be inerrant. We believe the Bible to be infallible. We believe the Bible should be reliable and trustworthy. And we want you to know it. We want you to study it. We want you to share it. And so do not be deceived. You can trust the word of God. And you say, well then, Pastor, how did, how did it even get there to begin with? I don't know. I don't know. Some may have said a scribe may um, have just added it in there. Well, why would anybody think it should be added in there? I don't know the answer to that either, but just to give you an, one potential um, theory is that something like this, something similar to this may have happened. And at the, that particular time, it may have been a tremendous amount of consensus that it was by oral tradition had been handed down, been handed down, been handed down, and there was a lot of people uh, it was just had agreement that this was it probably did happen. And so some scribe at some point felt, felt like it should be added, and that's why it kind of moves around, and that this was because it was true, it should be there. And here's where I want to provide a caution to you and, and why they want you to bring encouragement not only in our preaching, but in the Word of God primarily and, and, and foremost is that just because something has been handed down through tradition, just because something has been accepted as truth by a consensus or by a majority, or even if something that is true and everyone knows it's true, does not make it a part of the inspired revelation. Just because something's true doesn't mean it's inspired. doesn't mean that God wanted us to know this and to be it to be handed down. And so I'll leave you on this and then uh, I'll give our closing remarks uh, and then we'll pray we'll be finished. But here's what the Bible communicates to us about the inspiration of Scripture. For no, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men and women, we have the Bible because men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have the Bible that men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit after this, not to write, but after this, were there to protect the authority and the authenticity of the Bible. And by God's Holy Spirit, through human means, through human agents, has preserved His Word, that even this morning, over 2,000 years ago, we're able to see where the variances are. We're able to talk about the variances. And even more so, wherever you land as it relates to whether or not the woman caught in adultery is inspired of God or not, I want you to have answers, and I want you to have knowledge, and I want you to have even more so confidence And the word of God, that it is from God and God alone. And yes, he used fallible men who make mistakes and have errors, but he's preserved so many copies of the New Testament that he's been able to preserve his word perfectly for us that we can be able to trust him him and his word. Right? That's great confidence. Great confidence. And so you may not... Remember all that I just shared. You don't have to have all these notes. But I would encourage you that if you want more study on this, there's great resources out there that can be able to help you be able to think through those. Very, very technical things that 
uh, are difficult to be able to, to read, and then there's far more user, um, user-friendly, layman-type books that can be able to help you to be able to see. We're help, happy to, to uh, recommend some of those to you. This morning as we're looking at this, I want you to be, as a pastor, as a Christian, a fellow co-laborer with you, I want you to be confident that what you hold in your hands is the Word of God, and it can be trusted, and that you can know this God has preserved his word, has brought it to you, and granted you the power of the Holy Spirit to know his word, to understand his word, to be able to enjoy his word, and to, yes, share his word. Because I guarantee you, if you share long enough this type of criticism from those who are antagonistic and a variety of others that are going to be answered in the exact same way as I answered this now, that are going to say, what about this variance? And what about this variance? And what about these contradictions? And you're going to have opportunity to be able to address each of those will only be answered if first you believe the Bible is inspired of God. And it's been preserved for us to even such a time as this. Let's pray together. Father, I thank Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.